can subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth from a undisclosed location deep in the woods of western Wisconsin. All right, our theme tonight is the energy war happening over in Ukraine and the background in the way that wars are often fought for reasons other than what you hear about in the corporate-controlled mainstream media. Let's move on to our second-hour guest tonight. Charlotte Dennett is the author of Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. In that book, she recounts how trying to solve the mystery of the death of her father, OSS, which is pre-CIA officer, master spy, Middle East expert Daniel Dennett, who went down in a mysterious plane crash in 1947, led her to research the real cause of wars and to find that all wars, or so many modern wars, turn out to be mostly energy wars and, in fact, pipeline wars. So let's get into it. Welcome, Charlotte. How are you? Hello, Charlotte Dennett. We're having an issue reaching our guest tonight. We'll see if we can bring her on. We've got, we've got a, a Skype handle. We've got a phone number, and we will eventually uh, definitely get her. Hello there. This is there Charlotte is. Dennett. Please oh, leave a message. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, we've got a, I think we've got a couple of Add Skype handles, Please record your and message. we have a, a couple of phone numbers, so one of those eventually should reach her. Um, of course, unless uh, forces on high have somehow decreed that uh, whatever she has to say tonight would be too dangerous to be allowed to be disclosed. But I don't think that's going to happen. It looks like maybe she has to accept the Skype request or something like that. So maybe I'll, I'll tell her that. Some some people also apparently have a problem with their phones being unable to receive calls from Skype, which shows up as an unsolicited or unidentified number. So... Maybe we're hitting the trifecta of unlucky uh, miscommunications because uh, Mercury is in its descendants or whatever it is. I'm not an astrologer. Um, so let me see. Maybe I'll try calling her with the phone. Um, and that way, if it's the Skype that she can't reach, maybe we can get her to reset that. So I'm going to call Charlotte right now. Here we go. Okay, uh, hopefully nobody can figure out what her phone number is from listening to the tones. Okay, and that's supposed to be Charlotte's uh, cell. And see, if we can get through to her, then theoretically Revolution Radio should somehow be able to get through to her too. And if not, I just hope that uh, nobody's trying to step in to prevent her from appearing on the show and disclosing this very sensitive information. Um, so we're having no luck at Charlotte's cell. Oh, well, I, I don't want to have to talk about Charlotte's book myself for a whole hour because, well, frankly, I just got it in the PDF today, so I haven't had time to read it. Hello there, this is Charlotte Dennett. Okay, that's Charlotte. So let's try her home. And uh, if that doesn't work, you're going to have to wonder what the heck she's up to. I talked to her today. Uh, in fact... I had a nice chat with her that would have been a good radio show. I think I spent about half an hour on the line with her. And uh, I know she's definitely 
she was in reachable and in perfectly good health uh, about six hours ago. So maybe she'll pop up here. But that's odd because I just talked to her again just, just hours ago, and she was all good to go for the interview. Hey, Charlotte, there you are. Yeah. Kevin here, how are you? Good. Okay, so so we need to call you on Skype, uh, and I think the network has been um, not able to get through. This is your home number, and should they call this home number? And if so, is there a way that you can, like, disable whatever blocking you have that, that prevents unidentified numbers from calling you? All right, hold on a minute, okay? And you, okay. the other thing you could do is accept the Skype request from Revolution Radio. Okay, so we've got Charlotte at work on this, and I've got her on the line, and pretty soon Revolution Radio will have her on the line. And you'll have her it. tonight, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> this is tonight. Oh, my God. And what was the problem in calling me on this number? Or what? What? Tell me again. <laughs> okay. I, well, apparently um, our trusty studio whiz, Mr. Rowe, has been trying to call you at your two numbers as well as on Skype and having no luck. I have two Skype handles for you, though. Yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, what time is it? So, so yeah, if you jumped on your computer, Hold on. yeah, if you Hold were to, if you were to j- jump on your computer and accept a Skype uh, request. Uh, oh my goodness! Hey, there we go. Well, actually, your, your broadcast, okay, okay. I can. No, we agreed to this, so um, yeah. I'll call you So that that's that's <laughs> not the best excuse I've ever heard. I had to take the dog out, so I couldn't appear on your radio show. No, it's absolutely <laughs> true. We just got back. <laughs> that's like a fake excuse, but it's not. Uh, well, it's better than a dog eating your homework, anyway. Oh man! So we we have Charlotte here uh, making her way to her computer after taking the dog out. So that the mystery has been solved if not all the mysteries in the world, including the mystery of what really happened to her father uh, in the Middle East when he was about to push through this fruition, a pipeline project that would have benefited the U.S. and uh, not so much benefited the British and various other players uh, who were trying to get their hooks into the Middle Eastern energy. And so Charlotte's been trying to figure out what happened to him ever since. Eventually she managed to convince the CIA to actually honor him. The CIA normally doesn't honor their fallen heroes because they're supposed to be anonymous. But in this case, uh, the CIA did actually agree to hold a ceremony honoring Daniel Dennett, who was apparently quite the super spy. Uh, he was he fell in love with uh, Middle Eastern culture and Islam. Uh, he was an Islamologist, Middle East studies expert. I can relate to that. That's what I used to be before I became a professional conspiracy theorist. And Daniel Dennett uh, ran around the Middle East speaking perfect Arabic and, uh, right up until his untimely demise, apparently, you know, he was, he was quite the mover and shaker over there. So the CIA finally did honor him. Uh, I forget how many years ago that was. They invited Charlotte to their headquarters. And, uh, and so that she was, uh, telling me about that experience earlier today. Anyway, this, of course, uh, all of this, this story of her mysteriously a uh, plane crashed. Father let her to. I'm a, working on it. You're working on it. I'm, I'm just telling your story while you uh, while you get on the computer. What are you doing while I'm doing this? And I'm I'm telling the the listeners uh, about the. Oh the, my God! You mean they're on listening to me? 
board. Yeah, yeah, this I, is this is all live radio. Oh, I I didn't totally understand. Yeah, li- live radio is very exciting. Uh, it's you never know what's going to happen. You never do. So you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not the first person who's thrown a monkey wrench into my live radio show, Charlotte. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Here no we problem. go. Okay, here comes Charlotte. She's coming on to the uh, the wonderful internet. And how long is this interview? I forget. Well, you're scheduled to go for about another 45 minutes. Oh yeah, almost an hour. Okay, hold on. Okay, here we go. We're, we're Charlotte's going to pop up on Skype, hopefully, and uh, our trusty uh, studio whiz, Mr. Rowe, will be able to summon her up, and everybody will be able to hear her, and we'll be uh, off and running <laughs> with the scheduled radio show. Uh, her book looks really interesting, and I, I did read. Uh, I actually managed to carefully. I looked at the book and kind of you know, skimmed over the contents and stuff. But I, I, I just got it today, so I couldn't finish it, obviously, or even really start it. But I, I did read her terrific article in Covert Action Quarterly that just came out, and so that will be uh, one of the topics. Uh, and uh, the the article in Covert Action Quarterly is called "Why Ukraine Could Be the Mother of All Energy Wars." Yeah, and it sounds like that's going to, you know, carry on what we were talking about with Tom Luongo in the first hour. That is, that this mother of all energy wars, if Tom is right, is going to be the energy producers that really win. You know, in the past, the commodities producers. Here we go. Okay, we're almost there. Okay, so I'll hang up on the phone call, Charlotte, and we'll look for you on Skype. Okay, bye. So, Charlotte should be popping up here shortly. so the mother of all energy wars here, this is going to be the energy war, if Tom is right, that upends the apple cart. It, it turns everything upside down. It puts the commodities producers in the driver's seat because the big kahuna commodities producer, Russia, is they're bristling with nuclear weapons and some pretty good non-nuclear ones, too. They have a very powerful military, so they can't be pushed around. Unlike the Middle Eastern countries, which have been pushed around like crazy, since World War II and even before that. And unlike other commodities producers like the African countries and and various other countries around the world, uh, Latin American countries that have been screwed over by getting lousy terms of trade for their commodities, uh, mainly because the people buying those commodities at rock bottom prices have all the military power and a lot of the other kinds of power as well. Well, that's all going to get turned upside down, according to Tom. He thinks that Russia has made its move and that we're going to see the commodities producers suddenly uh, running the world. Well, that's uh, I'll believe that when I see it, but it's certainly not uh, completely impossible. Um, so I'm uh, expecting Charlotte to pop up here on our little Revolution Radio Skype call, and uh, I'm keeping an eye on the icon to see when that happens, and I suppose... Uh, we could keep trying her phone if necessary, too. The home phone was where I just talked to her. So, Mr. Rowe, if you're listening, you can always try Charlotte at her home phone if all else fails, if she somehow doesn't manage to accept the Skype invitation and pop up on Skype. All right. Um, so getting into the Mother of All Energy Wars uh, article, one of the key bits of information that Charlotte raises here which I've seen elsewhere, but hardly anybody else has. You have to dig pretty deep. Kevin? Hey, there she is. Welcome, hey. Charlotte. I'll let you tell us this stuff instead of me having to try to say everything that you were going to say. Hello. <laughs> hey, welcome. How I'm, are you? I, yeah, I'm just getting in now. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm there. 
Yeah, yeah, you're, you're on the air. You're live. We are live on the oh, air. Oh, there, everybody. <laughs> yeah, you're broadcasting to an immense audience. I can't even, uh, I don't even want to think about how many uh, millions and even billions or trillions of <laughs> conscious entities are, are attending to what we say from all over the known universe and beyond. So, so Charlotte, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not quite sure where to start here, except I guess uh, I'll just bring up the first hour of this radio show. We had Tom Luongo on, and he basically agrees that, that this Ukraine war is the mother of all energy wars. He thinks Russia's going to win this. He thinks that for the first time in generations, the commodities producers are going to take back the power from the commodities consumers, and specifically Russia is going to clobber Europe. And then the U.S. is probably going to move down a couple of pegs, too. Um, do you agree with that? I think it's too soon. I'm too, too soon it's to too go. soon to say, hold, hold on, i got to turn something down. I'm sorry. Hold <laughs> on, please. Just okay. A Okay, you got to turn down the stove before the smoke uh, takes over the house. I know how that goes. I've had that happen to me once or twice. Okay, all yeah. right, here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Um, yeah, uh, who's going to win? Oh, it's hard to say, you know. Um, uh, Putin has his supporters, of course, and, and I just read a, even a piece in the New York Times with a map that shows that a large part portion of the world supports Russia in this whole thing, uh, which is not conveyed over the mainstream media uh, for obvious reasons. We all know that in times of war, truth is the biggest uh, casualty. So um, the thing is that, that I, in my book, Follow the Pipelines, I do identify uh, Putin as a master in the great game. And uh, I don't think, you know, the, our media is not going to acknowledge it, but it is. He's an ex-KGB guy, and he knows that oil and gas is the basis of his power. And, and my guess is that he's thinking if this uh, continues for months, then Europe is going to start reeling, uh, particularly if the European uh, countries that have been so reliant on Russian uh, natural gas, it's like 40% of their supplies comes from Russia. He's looking for the long haul, and it's going to start call, causing divisions in the uh, NATO alliance. My guess is that that, that is his calculus. But, um, you know, who can say? It's really hard to predict what happens in a war. I mean, things can go dangerously wrong. Uh, as Putin already discovered with his initial advance on Kiev that apparently failed. So I don't want to predict on this. That's probably smart. There's my answer. I, I don't think I would, I would uh, bet the farm on anything either. What do you think about uh, Tom's pointing to the recent decisions in places like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and perhaps even Qatar to essentially stiff their American masters and not take Biden's phone calls, uh, refuse to pump extra oil when they're ordered to by the White House, and indeed announce that they're going to start selling their oil in Yuan. Uh, this certainly is uh, something that I never expected to see anytime soon. No, uh, nor would I have. Uh, but the problem for the U.S. is that they, they've all got um, – uh, relationships with Russia and trade and oil and so on relationships um, and, and particularly Saudi Arabia um, stiffing it 
that's fascinating. Although uh, we all know that uh, Saudi Arabia had a particularly close tie to Trump. That's all come out recently with the uh, revelation that uh, Kushner just got $2 billion from the uh, crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and uh, possibly, this is, this is theorized, it, in uh, return for the fact that Trump acknowledged him as the, as the, the new leader um, when the, uh, I would say, the, the neoliberals uh, did not accept Mohammed bin Salman. So there's a close relationship between MBS and Trump, and that may also explain uh, the Saudis sort of stiffing uh, Biden on this issue. So that's, you know, what's so interesting about this is that you cannot look at the crisis in Ukraine without looking at a broader context. And part of that is the whole involvement of the Middle East. And, and again, it's all about oil and gas, right? Who controls it? Um, who's making money off of it? And so, uh, they're still holding out. Is your latest information that Saudi has not increased oil production even as of yet? Is that what you well, I, I haven't heard. Uh, I heard they said. Yes, I, I, I heard that the Saudis rejected. Uh, well, n- didn't even take Biden's call and then refused to pump more oil. And I haven't heard anything that they've changed that. Have you? Yeah, that that was some time ago, wasn't that? About two weeks ago when. Yes. Uh, yeah. So. So we're we're still waiting to see what they do, and um, you know what can I say? It's like, for instance, when I was just focusing on Middle East issues, let alone Ukraine, uh, things were volatile, constantly changing, and it it really goes down to you know profiteering and. Um, well, the great game for oil, which is what my book is all about. Um, you, you can get into all sorts of intrigues when it has to do with oil. And I learned this from investigating the death of my father uh, way back in, in World War II when his, his job was to um, protect Saudi oil at all costs. He, my father was the... Um, America's first master spy in the Middle East. And uh, he died after a top-secret mission to Saudi Arabia. And it was all about a pipeline, namely the Trans-Arabian Pipeline, that was going to ship oil to a, a terminal point on the Mediterranean. And the, and the possible uh, terminal point was going to be either Lebanon or, guess what, Haifa, Palestine. And what I found is there are all sorts of intrigue about that. And uh, the British, our own allies, the British, the French, and the Russians were all freaked out about this pipeline and uh, because it threatened their own interests and their own control over the area. And this pipeline, as I argue in my book, Follow the Pipelines, uh, was that it was going to enhance the U.S. as a superpower. So that was 70 years ago, and Saudi oil did, in fact, help um, establish the U.S. as a not only a major power in the Middle East, but in the world. So now we come way up to, to the present, 
And we've always assumed that there's a special relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. But with uh, MBS in power, um, that's less guaranteed, uh, and particularly because Biden and, and some of you know the, the neoliberal forces um, it, that have a huge influence on foreign policy making wanted uh, uh, somebody else, uh, Bin Saif, I believe his name is, and they didn't get it. Instead, Mohammed bin Salman be- became the uh, heir apparent to the throne. So, um, you know, what can I say? It, it, you, it, there's so much intrigue going on with oil that it can change from week to week. Uh, and and I, 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 I'm hesitant to make predictions. So in the big I picture. Mean, there's also some yeah. pressure that can be brought to bear. Um on uh, the Saudis and, you know, the Israelis are holding off, too. I mean, these are our, our, the U.S.'s prime um, allies in the Middle East, and well, yet supposedly. they have developed relations with with Russia. And there you can see uh, Putin was mas- masterfully uh, working on them to, to get a uh, relationship with them, and now we're seeing it. We're seeing it being played out in the war in Ukraine. Very fascinating to me. So, so how, how do you see Russia's relationship with Israel right now? Uh, I guess uh, many people now would see Russia and Israel as being a little bit more antagonistic than in, in a partnership, and that some of the leverage there is because Russia saved uh, Assad's government in Syria, and that was not particularly popular with the Israelis because the Syrians are allied with the Iranians, who... Uh, are the nemesis of the Israelis. So Russia now has advanced anti-air systems and other military power in Syria, and Israel feels the need to keep bombing Syria, whether it's politics, domestic consumption, or whatever, but they have to keep you know, blowing things up in Syria and saying that they're, they're going after the Iranians and their friends. And Russia kind of can either totally stop that and humiliate the Israelis, or choose not to entirely and sort of negotiate with them. And I think Russia's been negotiating and trying to maintain an open door with Israel. I don't really see them exactly as allies or partners, though. It's more like they're uh, they're moderate adversaries with leverage over each other. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good observation. Again, we're talking about the great game, all right? This, this is it. It's so clear now where you have the major petrol powers, which right now are the U.S. and Russia, um, jockeying for influence. And um, Israel has been problematic for the U.S. Who would ever guess that? And and the reason is that... Well, wait, who would ever guess that Israel's problematic for the U.S.? I mean, who killed Kennedy? Who did 9-11, et cetera? (laughs) Come on. No, I mean... Who sent letter bombs to Truman? Well, wait, wait. Well, I don't know what you're saying. Israel has always been a steadfast ally now of the U.S. Are, are you... I'm saying Israel that? is the tail that wagged the dog. The Israelis, uh, well, before there, shortly before there was Israel, the Israelis sent a letter bomb to Harry Truman. Uh, the, the Israelis were a prime force in the murder of John F. Kennedy because he was dedicated to shutting down their nuclear program. And the Israelis were a prime force in 9-11. And, of course, the Israelis were up to their necks in the, uh, the, the 1967 war and the Liberty incident, which they orchestrated with their uh, their friend uh, LBJ that they helped put in the White House by murdering John F. Kennedy. 
The Israelis have worked with the Russians, stolen American secrets, pillaged the American nuclear program, and treated America like proverbial crap uh, throughout the entire history of the existence of Israel. Well, whoa. All right. I, I, I'm not going to say that I agree with all of your uh, conclusions on that, but um, that's partly because uh, well, you're not I haven't dealt with you. <laughs> I haven't delved into the Kennedy. I haven't delved into the, into the Kennedy assassination argument. I never heard about that about Truman. That that they uh, they threatened him. Well, that's interesting. They well, actually sent um, letter bombs. They sent actual bombs to Truman, which where, of course were intercepted before that? they got there. Uh, well, there's a there's a long paper trail there, but the the easy go to source for some of this stuff is uh, Allison Weir's book Against Our Better Judgment. Um, which describes how every single one of Truman's advisors very strongly argued against uh, supporting the creation of Israel. In the State Department, the military, it was 100% unanimous. And uh, Truman told them, well, uh, I get the money and the votes from the pro-Israel community here in the U.S., so it's politically I have to do it. And, of course, Gore Vidal uh, and John F. Kennedy talked about how Truman was handed uh, $2 million in cash, which was quite a lot of money back then, in a suitcase by uh, a kosher Nostra uh, friend and supporter from St. Louis. Uh, and that was essentially the bribe money that won his 1948 campaign and uh, also committed him to perpetual uh, servitude to the Israelis. Wow. Well, that's interesting. Um, there's, there's another angle, one that I am aware of, and that is that um, – Nelson Rockefeller uh, became very persuasive in uh, uh, convincing uh, the UN through votes to uh, support the the uh, creation of the State of Israel through his command over Latin American delegates, uh, and that's a whole other story. I, I mean, I have a previous book uh, written by Gerard Colby with with me as the um, sort of secondary writer, but it took us 18 years to write this book, and we analyzed Nelson Rockefeller, who had a huge control over Latin America uh, that he was able to uh, wrangle during World War II as a coordinator for inter-American affairs. So he was able to uh, get uh, Latin American delegates to support the creation of the State of Israel. Now, there is some question that um this is this is still somewhat hypothetical that the reason that he did this is because um there was an effort um that prevented um uh Jew, Jewish holocaust victims to emigrate to Palestine during um World War 2 uh, because the U.S. was very dependent on Saudi oil, and Ibn Saud, um, the, the the ruler of Saudi Arabia, when confronted with the with the idea of um, having Saudi Arabia control Palestine, he rejected that. But the whole idea was they had to pacify Saudi Arabia. And um, anyway, they had to pacify yeah, yeah, Saudi Arabia. 
uh, because Sa- the Saudis threatened to, to cut off the, the whole oil concession, the, the exclusive oil concession that U.S. had. The Saudis didn't want Jews emigrating to Palestine, and they put that pressure on the U.S. And, and um, so, and, yeah, you, and you should, the Americans... You should say uh, Zionist fanatics uh, invading Palestine uh, and committing genocide against the inhabitants of Palestine, because that's a more accurate description of what really happened. Well, yeah, you can you can say that, but all I'm talking about is all the the uh, manipulations that were going on um, with regard to how do you rescue the Jews? Okay, I mean that that was a, a serious problem conf- confronting FDR, and and the feeling was there was a lot of clamor to um, bomb the camps, for instance, to bomb Auschwitz. And at why, why would Jews want Auschwitz to be bombed? There were even people in the camps who, who, who wanted it to happen. They felt they were going to die anyway. But the whole idea is that would have stopped the killing machine. And, and, what, uh, and what, are, what are your sources it, on this? Oh, there's tons of sources on this, but you, you can also look at my book for the source on this. Okay, yeah, I'm looking forward uh, to that. This is, yeah, this is well known that um, the U.S. Um, did not bomb Auschwitz, uh, arguing that um, they didn't want to divert their, their air force, when in fact the uh, American Air Force flew right over it trying to bomb I.G. Farben. So um, John J. McCloy, who was very instrumental in this decision, um, who was working with the uh, State Department, or the War Department, sorry, um, made the decision not not to bomb Auschwitz because the feeling was if they did, uh, and there were uh, many Jews uh, who would have been saved, they would have emigrated to Palestine, and the U.S. didn't want that to happen because they didn't you know, want fr- to. Frankly, so, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about that whole narrative, to say the least. Um, but what, what year did this ostensibly happen? This was, let me think now. This was in 43. Okay, because, yeah, the, the, uh, the death. Or 44. Uh, the, the, Right. The, the, the standard Holocaust narrative has it that the transformation of these uh, these work and transit camps into death camps happened in the summer of 1942. So this would have been then just kind of a year or so after that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. It, yeah. OK, because that, that would make sense. Because if, if it was later in the war, that wouldn't really make sense, because later in the war, uh, when much of Germany was starving, uh, and of course the people in the camps were uh, not first in line for food, uh, bombing the camps and the rail lines of the camps and so on would have just made that situation worse. Uh, in in what way? Explain. Well, uh, that in, in, at the end of the war, uh, the these camps, you know, were well. It depends which there are all these different kinds of camps or transit camps, but there were work camps. And the, I think the, the biggest ones were that were work camps where that were also uh, extermination camps. I don't think there were I don't think the official Holocaust narrative tells us that there were any pure extermination camps that didn't have a work camp element to them. 
And so those those camps continued uh, as work camps right through the entire war. But by the end of the war, Germany was falling apart. There was no more food. There was no more fuel. And people were reduced to starvation in those camps. And interestingly, when uh, the Russians, I know at least one, uh, one of these camps, I've discussed this with uh, guests like Gilad Atzman, uh, he's his he's still scratching his head over the fact that at uh, at least one of these camps, I think maybe more. I, it's been a while since I discussed this with him. The uh, Jewish refugees from the camps who were in very dire shape uh, chose to flee uh, with their German captors. Uh, ra- they were had the choice of staying and being, quote unquote, liberated by the Russians. But they chose to flee with their uh, German captors. Any in any case, at the end of the war, uh, there was uh, terrible suffering in the camps uh, among the people who had been working them, but there were still very large numbers of inmates there. And they're not all Jews, of course, but the, these camp inmates were uh, lots of them were still alive at the end of the war, but increasingly uh, starving and in uh, terrible shape. Uh, and obviously bombing uh, the camps or the supply lines such as existed, which you know, they obviously didn't even exist by the end of the, you know, right at the end of the war, obviously wouldn't have helped anything. But if you're talking about 1943, yes, then I can then I suppose it would it would make more sense. Yeah, 43, 44, that that period, um, because that's when uh, the decision was made, uh, and and envoys uh, were sent out into the uh, Middle East during this period, 43, and uh, they came back and said that, you know, this creation of, the, of, of this state would be problematic, and and the reason was because of Saudi oil. And this is a story that is not in the official um, history, and um, it's one of the things that I've tried to show in my book. Um, also, when it comes, if we take it fast forward all the way up to the uh, war in Iraq, um, one of the one of the story. Well, no, not just the war in Iraq. Let me let me go back to World War. <laughs> go back to World War One. Uh, one of the things that I did. In looking at pipelines, which which have been, were described as arteries of empire by a contemporary with my father, and particularly the Trans Arabian Pipeline, when I looked at that, and then I saw this great article in the New York Times uh, uh, in March 1947, March 2, it showed a map of the uh, Trans Arabian Pipeline, but it also showed a map of two older pipelines. And they were both carrying the oil of Iraq to the Mediterranean coast. And the northern pipeline went to Lebanon, but the southern pipeline went to Haifa, Haifa, which was then still Palestine. And I thought that was most interesting, and I started to look more into World War One, and uh, because I thought, if you build a pipeline, you have to conceive of it first. You have to plan for it. And it takes a lot of planning because wherever you run a pipeline, it may go through certain hostile territories. So you have to pacify the, the local indigenous population to make sure it runs through there. And uh, Sort of like we pacified the Taliban. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. So there's a long history of that. That's what my what my book, Follow the Pipelines, show. So you go back and you see this pipeline uh, with its two branches carrying oil from Iraq. They were built in the 30s, but they were conceived earlier. And I went back to World War One, 
And uh, I, I even went so far back as uh, Winston Churchill uh, when he was uh, in charge of the British Admiralty uh, and made the, de- the decision in 1911 to convert uh, the British Navy, uh, its reliance on coal for its fuel, to oil. And at the time, Britain had no oil. It had lots of coal, but he he knew that oil... Uh, was more efficient and cheaper, so he made this huge decision, and he predicted that Britain would have to to uh, fight on on a sea of troubles, which is true. But at least during World War One, one of his quote unquote first class war aims was to get the oil of Iraq, and um, uh, Britain succeeded in getting control of that oil. And the next thing is, once you get control of the oil, well, how do you ship it to market, or how do you ship it to your warships? And it's by pipeline. And lo and behold, they considered that the most efficient route was to get this by pipeline to Haifa. So then I looked at the Balfour Declaration, uh, which is often, almost always quoted as one of the... um, justifications for establishing a Jewish uh, homeland in Palestine or one of the uh, allowances by the British government. The Balfour Declaration was uh, actually just a letter written by the Foreign Secretary, Lord Balfour, to uh, Lord Walter Rothschild, who was a scene of the Rothschild family, and they were like the top people in Europe um, controlling oil at the time. So uh, there have been some Israelis that have looked into this recently. There's more uh, declassification of documents that are going on even in Israel. And so uh, the point has been made that uh, it would be very convenient to have a European colony of, of Jews from Europe that would be placed in uh, Palestine to receive this this pipeline. In other words, you if you if you're going to have a pipeline uh, secured, you got to make sure that you got friendly people protecting it. So back then, it would have been the Jews who uh, definitely needed a homeland. Many of them who had suffered from the Holocaust. But there's this geopolitical element also involved, which I, most official histories did not account for. Wait, wait, Mainly you're saying in 19, 1917 the Jews needed a homeland? Oh, in 1917, um, yeah, they, they felt even back then, the Balfour Declaration, yes, absolutely. I mean, there there were pogroms and pos- and pros- uh, yeah, against Jews, even back, well, even back then, back then. And uh, so... The whole idea, the whole Zionist idea was developed in 1917 that the British government would favor a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And it's always been presented as the the Brits being sympathetic to the plight of the Jews um, who were persecuted. Uh, but what I'm adding is there, there was another um, incentive 
a geopolitical one, namely they needed pro-European people, people who were of a European descent as opposed to Muslims, which they feared. So why not have that terminal point in Palestine? And at the same time, it would be part of the Jewish homeland. That's what I, that's what I'm saying. That's an interesting thesis. I would argue that it obviously certainly didn't turn out that way in that, you know, these, there have been arguments coming from people like Noam Chomsky and, and many other critics of American policy, critics of empire, who argue that Israel has been basically created for the benefit of the American empire. However, well, I that's found... True. Yeah, I found far more convincing also, articles. Go ahead. Yeah, I found it far more convincing that uh, from the people like James Petrus, who did an analysis of what were the forces that pushed us into the 9/11 wars, and what he found was that big oil did not want war, and in fact, generally, big oil doesn't want war; it wants stability. It was, in fact, uh, the neocons who are uh, Zionist extremists who wanted war. And so it, it, taking, you know, looking at that, that, that the real cause of 9-11 and 9-11 wars was uh, Zionism or even Zionist extremism, not oil. Uh, we look back over the, the previous history and what we see is that the existence of Israel has always made it much, much, much harder for the West and especially the U.S. to extract uh, oil in a stable way from that region. And for the same reason that even Saud told uh, Franklin Roosevelt when they met on the ship in, in 1945, even Saud broke down crying and begged Roosevelt not to allow the creation of a Zionist state. He said that millions and millions of people will die over decades and decades if you do this. Um, the reason he knows that is that the, the creation of the Zionist state, which has been a geno genocidal and terrorist Zionist state, it was created through terrorism, as Thomas Suarez's book, State of Terror, uh, explains in great gruesome detail, uh, is uh, a it's a, a poison spear in the heart of, of the world of Islam, which has acted as the custodian of the holy places of Palestine virtually ever since Islam existed, with only uh, a few brief and bloody crusader interludes to interrupt it. So the creation of the Zionist state, especially by these uh, fanatical terrorist psychopaths uh, who are still slaughtering Palestinians every day, sh shooting Palestinian children, just in the past week they've been invading the Al-Aqsa Mosque during prayers and torturing, tormenting, and attacking uh, the people praying in there. That uh, th This was a declaration of war against the entire Islamic world. And even Saud knew that, and that's why he begged Roosevelt not to do it. You have all of Truman's advisors knew that, and they begged Truman not to do it. And ever since then, all decent, normal, sane people have opposed this Zionist genocide of Palestine, this this war on the Islamic world. And, you know, I, I what I've been hearing from you seems to be grotesquely biased in, in ignoring this just basic, obvious uh, fact. Well, look, you've got to look at history very carefully and you've got to you've got to trace things uh, through a timeline. So what my findings are that um, when I my book has what twelve maps they're all map pipeline maps who that make my case that uh, that pipeline politics uh, can lead to war and assassinations and regime change as it has uh, in the Middle East and um, 
But what I do is I show, when I was looking at the maps, because usually the modus operandi at, that happened in, uh, pal- in, in, in the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, uh, was to protect, uh, send in troops to protect pipeline routes, and I can elaborate on that, okay? But that when I was looking over the uh, the maps and thinking, well, where where's the route along the the Trans Arabian Pipeline uh, where soldiers might have been placed to protect that very vital artery, which it was, uh, I concluded that it wasn't just soldiers being stationed along the pipeline; it was Israel itself. But see, Israel that but show, show, that makes no sense. The, the Arab, the Arabs. Wait a minute. Now just, wait, excuse me. I've done a lot of work on this, so give yeah. me a chance. Okay? okay? Okay. Right. In this period, um, uh, the state of Israel, as you know, has been heavily, heavily supported by infusions of arms and, and money. Right? So the state of Israel, I concluded, was the protector of the Trans-Arabian Pipeline, which was very crucial to the United States becoming a superpower. Uh, and um, especially right after the war, um, it was instrumental in the Marshall Plan. And, uh, but, but there was no the pipeline. Uh, there was a pipeline in 1949. I mean, it, I'm sorry, it was not in 49, it was in 51, okay, but it was planned in 47. Uh, one of the things that happened is that there was, uh, the Syrians were resisting this pipeline. Uh, they were, at the time, they were anti-Zionist and very nationalist. They didn't want it running through Syrian territory. Exactly. If having they... Israel, see, having Israel there made it impossible to get the oil out because the whole region is at absolute all no, out. You're wrong. Forever against you're wrong. Zionism. I'm sorry. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. I'm sorry. I have to disagree with you. That pipeline went through. The pipeline went through because the CIA staged its first ever coup. It, it was in 1949, and it replaced the uh, elected uh, uh, president of Syria, Shukri Kowalki, and, and replaced him with a police chief. And then the pipeline went through. But none of this would have been and, necessary if there was no Israel. If there's no Israel, nobody minds having the pipeline. The only reason they don't want the pipeline is they hate Israel. I don't know. I, I don't know where you're going on this. I mean, no. What I'm going is that the whole region was massively destabilized by the creation of Israel, which made it much more difficult to extract energy. That's the thing that I, I can't no, understand. No, no, I just don't agree with you. I think that Israel became a very crucial outp- outpost for the empire, for American empire. It was it was a a um, respected and uh, ally. And it may have caused problems, I grant that. But overall, uh, Israel was there uh, so that if anybody, any of the Islamic countries thought to challenge U.S. hegemony in the area, they knew there was Israel that had huge American support. And by the way, it's got nukes up the wazoo. All right? The Israel is, is a military base for U.S. imperial power. 
When did Israel ever help the U.S. do anything over there? Well, uh, it's prevented. uh, It created all the wars. All these wars are caused by Israel's presence in the region. I mean, the, the whole region would be happy to sell its energy if there wasn't a genocide going on in Palestine. The, the problems in Palestine have gone on and on and on. As you know, the media has been very pro-Israel and has um, not been um, uh, very charitable towards the, the struggles of the Palestinian people, and that's been going on for years. Look, I can just tell you, the, the U.S., Israel, despite some of these problems, Israel has, has, has stood as a stalwart ally of the United States. Ah, well, now, I need to bring some CIA people and ex-CIA people to talk to you about this. What? What, what are you saying? My, my oh, ex-CIA sorry. friends. Excuse I have ex- me. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. Jerry, please be quiet. It's my well, husband in the background. Oh, so so we, we have we have a kibitzer. So so Charlotte, uh, we only have five minutes left. Let's argue some more about the Middle East later. But well, for- well, let me let me just tell you something about the war in Iraq. Okay, the war in Iraq happened because uh, Netanyahu wanted to revive that pipeline that ran from Iraq to Palestine. He wanted to revive it, and he even said soon the the oil is going to be flowing to to uh, Haifa, okay? And I agree with and that. The whole you're, you're idea was right. to overthrow Saddam Hussein, put in a pro-Israel uh, Ahmad Shalabi, who was an Iraqi exile, who was also the guy who came up with the weapons of mass destruction um, argument. And when, that, when the WMD uh, thing became a scandal, that plan never happened, but the U.S., uh, Israel always wanted to revive that pipeline, and I, I agree it's the neocons that have been pushing the endless wars in the area. It's true, but they also had an ally from the neo, neoliberal uh, uh, faction, namely the big new Brzezinski. He was particularly instrumental in the war in Afghanistan. But uh, the neocons have been very instrumental in that. I agree with you. And you're right, I think, about the pipelines being crucial to both the Iraq War and the uh, Afghan War. There was a pipeline project there as well. But since we only have a couple of minutes left, let's jump to Ukraine and talk about the Nord Stream pipeline and pipeline politics there and, and mention the Snake Island gas deposits, which you're one of the very few people who sees the importance of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, once again, the oil angle is not discussed, although it's unavoidable now. It's so obvious. I mean, you hear it every other day about how, how are the Europeans going to get uh, their their oil their oil and natural gas supplies. The U.S. tried to prevent the Nord Stream pipeline from Russia to Germany. They felt it threatened, um, um, it threatened the, their efforts to wean Europe off of its dependence on Russia. Very great game story, right? So they tried to prevent the pipeline. Uh, they didn't succeed. It was about to, it was finished and it was about to go through and would have been certified in, in this summer. And then the war in Ukraine happened and pressure was brought upon Germany to stop the pipeline. So it was stopped. That's 
ultimately going to throw a lot of turmoil into into Europe because they're always they, they are they're always worried about where they're going to get their natural gas supply. So the U.S. is going around trying to find other suppliers that will help Europe. And one of the things is the the fracking industry in the United States, which is what the the neocons have been supporting all along under Trump. It's the major support for Trump was the uh, fracking oil industry. And so they're trying to get in now and replace Russia with oil. So that's why I call it a major energy war. And that ship uh, on uh, Snake Island the, the, uh, that was conquered by, by the uh, Russians, um, no the one talks resistance. about it. But yeah. That's, yeah. There's major oil in the Black Sea. Okay, that isn't discussed either, but, but that was a very uh, strategic... Uh, outpost for the uh, the uh, Russians to to get control of it. The Russians are trying to control the Black Sea, which is full of oil and natural gas, and the U.S. is fighting them. That's what this friggin' war is ultimately about. Here, here, in my I, I, opinion. I, I think I think you're pretty much right on about that. Uh, and uh, Ukraine, if it comes into NATO, and it's already de facto NATO, really. Let's face it is if they get all that or much of the energy in the Black Sea uh, and they can then sell that to Europe and undercut Russia uh, and now they've got the Nord Stream pipeline shut down, you know, that would be kind of the uh, the ultimate uh, defeat for Russia. And, and on, that on the would other be, side. But as you, as you said at the beginning of the show, you know, maybe Russia's going to pull out ahead on this. And one thing you got to look at is, is their focus on eastern Ukraine and Crimea. It's all, it's about oil and gas because that's where most of the oil and gas is. Uh, Ukraine next to, where is it? I'm trying to think. It's one of, it, it's next to Russia. Is it? It's one of the major suppliers of, of, uh, I mean, it has the largest reserves right. of natural gas, um, in Europe. That's never right. brought out by the press. So that's why I'm saying this is an energy war. And yep. it, beca- it may become the mother of all energy wars because now we're involving Europe. We're not talking about proxy wars anymore. We're talking about big power standoff between two superpowers. Uh, and Russia has almost all of its power is based on oil and gas versus the United States. It's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. We can just hope that it doesn't end up in nuclear war. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy, and it, it, in some ways, it sort of recapitulates World War II, where the struggle for Caspian uh, oil was so important. Yeah, and it, and it became so again. And the people who were pushing that were the in the modern age, it was the neocons and primarily Dick Cheney, who mm-hmm. were saying that Caspian oil and gas was going to be uh, the savior for mankind. They were going to be able to wean off Middle East oil if they could get Caspian oil. And that was why this uh, pipeline going through Afghanistan originating in Turkmenistan, which is near Caspian, uh, that that was part of the plan. So um, to, to get control of that energy route going to uh, points in Asia, in Central Asia, TAPI, it's called the TAPI pipeline, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. That's what it stands for. Uh, there are negotiations going on right now with the Taliban 
who have claimed that they will protect the pipeline route. So there you go. So why do we bother fighting them for all these years? We fight fight them for 20 years and they just make a pipeline deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Look, they were originally originally going to be used um, to protect the pipeline. And then events soured right after 9-11. Yeah, well, I think, I think the Taliban tried to, tried to hand it off the brightest on Argentina, and then they, that was part of the cost But we hit the end of the hour. That's the music. Thank you so much, Charlotte Dennett. It's wonderful. I uh, can't, can't wait to bring you back and talk some more about your books. So uh, God bless, and talk to you again. Okay, well, thank you very much. Okay, it was bye. fun. Yeah, yeah. Right. Thank you for listening to Charlotte Dennett. Take care. Radio, Take care. Signing off.